Uh, good to, to be with you all. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel. I serve as the campus pastor here. If I haven't met you, hi. Good to see you. Uh, I'd love to meet you and greet you sometime after the service. Come find me. Uh, I should look like this after the service, so you should be able to identify me. But uh, it's good to be with you all. Um, I'd love to just pray for our time. Before we jump into God's Word, I just ask that He would uh, bless the teaching of His Word as we hear from Him. So let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we, we pause in this moment asking for your Spirit to bring illumination and teaching and understanding and clarity about who you are and about who we are. Lord, I ask that, that as we hear from your word that you would, that you would speak to us, that you would form us and shape us to be people who reflect your character in this world. May you, may you do that, Lord, in us individually and collectively. And I ask, Lord, that, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in the second half of, of Acts chapter 2. And while you're turning there, uh, my guess is, like, if you were a, among one of the 112 million people who watched the Super Bowl uh, last week, you saw a pretty interesting uh, game. Uh, and, and, but e- even more entertaining than the game itself, I was really just drawn to this narrative of these, these two dueling quarterbacks. You know, you have, you have Tom Brady, who's arguably the most hated, I mean, the most talented quarterback <laughs> of all time, uh, going up against Nick Foles, who's really just, I mean, like, this kind of no-name quarterback. You kind of forgot about him. And, like, some of you are like, who was this guy? Like, is he famous for being a Napoleon Dynamite impersonator? Is that kind of how he's known? I think I've got a picture of that, maybe. Yeah, look at there he is. He looks more like, he, he's got an arm like Uncle Rico, but he looks like Napoleon Dynamite. But, um, but, it, but in, in seriousness, like, there's something, like, who, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Nick Foles, if you didn't know, like, he was, the last three years, he's been a backup quarterback, for three different teams, and during that time, he actually contemplated quitting the NFL. Uh, And he went from being a backup quarterback to being the MVP of the Super Bowl. And so I'm sure people are just asking, like, what What happened? Like, where did this guy come from? What got him to this place of being the MVP of the Super Bowl? And and I I share this story um, not just because I love an opportunity to make fun of Tom Brady, but because I I, I want us to see that when we back up 2,000 years, and, and see these opening stories in the book of Acts, I'm sure that the same questions were being asked of a particular apostle. The question of who is this guy? What happened? Where did he come from? And, and that person in question, that apostle in question is, is Peter. Peter went from being this kind of no-name Galilean fisherman who both betrayed Jesus and denied Jesus to being the, the pastor of like the first like mega church essentially in the book of Acts. Like, and so like the question is, what happened? What changed? What brought Peter to this place of being able to proclaim a message with boldness against a hostile crowd? And the biggest change in Peter's life was, I think, in many ways, the fact that the message that he was proclaiming, he finally got it. It finally connected. I mean, Peter had been journeying with Jesus for three years, and he was so confused. He never really got the message of Jesus' kingdom. And now, finally, Peter gets it. It's connected. The dots have come together. The puzzle pieces fit. And he now sees this story, this message, and how beautiful it is. But the question for us is, is what is this message? And, and, and how does it impact us? How does it change us today in 2018? 
And, and this is our, our third week. If, if you're new with us, we, we just started a series in the book of Acts. This is our third week in the book of Acts. And what we're doing as we journey through Acts for the, the next several uh, months is kind of breaking it up into these mini-series. And this first series is just a three-part series uh, entitled Sent. And so this is the last message in this kind of mini-series of looking at what is the mission of the church. And we've seen so far the mission that God has called us to. We see that as Jesus commissions the disciples to be his witnesses throughout the entire world. And then last week we looked at how the church has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go forth in accomplishing this mission. And this morning we look at and focus in on the message that the church has been commissioned with to proclaim. It is the same message that Peter proclaimed. It is the message that we are called to believe, receive, and declare in this world. And so what I would like for us to do is as we look at Peter's sermon, this is the first sermon of the Christian church that Peter declares in Acts chapter 2, what I want us to see, and this is true of Peter and it's true for you and me, is that nothing changes your life or my life more than getting this message. Nothing changes your life or my life more than getting this message, seeing this truth of this message come together, fit, and make sense of, of our lives and of the story of God. And, and so, so but, but before we can understand this message, we, we have to understand how it changes us. We have to know what the message is. And so what we're going to do, we're just going to kind of walk through Peter's sermon, uh, which I realize is kind of weird to have a sermon about a sermon. It's like the, the preaching equivalent of like the movie Inception, you know, it's, but, but, but trek with me. It'll be good. It'll be good. But I want us to see what is this sermon? What is the heart of this message that Peter is declaring? And in many ways, what, we, we, what I hope we can see is that what how is, what is the connection between Peter's sermon 2,000 years ago and the connection to why we are even in this room together hearing these words? This first sermon that Peter gives in the book of Acts is in many ways the reason why you and I are in this space together. So we're going to walk through the sermon together. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, and we see verses 14 and 15, Peter is responding to kind of a critique that the crowd is giving of the disciples. Uh, they're, they're accusing the disciples of being drunk because they've been empowered by the Spirit, and they have this, this joyful fearlessness and this desire to, to include others. And so I mean, it's changing their posture. And so here's what Peter says in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice... And address them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you, you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And I, I love the, the way the NIV renders it is, is that these men are not drunk, it's only nine in the morning, which is just, it's just great. It's like, this isn't spring break in Cancun, people. And so, so, so Peter, Peter and he's being a good preacher. Notice that Peter doesn't just start a sermon like, repent and believe. He begins by speaking to a common experience that they're all sharing. He's like, hey, you're witnessing this thing. Something is happening in your midst. I see it too. And he speaks to this situation, and he applies the scriptures and the story of God to it. And he does so by referring to the Old Testament prophet Joel. So the crowd who's listening to Peter, largely Jewish, is very familiar with the Old Testament Bible, the Hebrew Bible. And Peter begins his sermon by quoting from Joel chapter 2, and we see this in verses 17 and 18. And he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
Now, uh, Peter's kind of doing two things here. One, he's trying to make sense of what the crowd is experiencing. Again, he's being a good preacher. Say, hey, you're, you're witnessing this, this interesting phenomenon of the Spirit being poured out upon people, and they're acting in a different way. And so Peter is speaking to what they are observing and experiencing. But secondly, I think what Peter is doing is he's actually helping the crowd and us know how to interpret and really kind of read our Bibles. What, what, what Peter's doing is by, by, by using Joel to kind of explain what they're experiencing, Peter is saying, look, this is what God has been up to from the beginning. The way we understand the biblical narrative is that it is leading to, it is preparing us for these events. Everything we've read from the law of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, they are pointing to, previewing, preparing us for all of these events that we're experiencing, namely the dawn of the Messiah, Jesus himself, the, the preaching and teaching of the kingdom of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the launch of the Christian church. And so Peter is saying all of these things, these are not new. They are building off of what God has been doing from the beginning. Then Peter goes on, and he continues to quote from Joel chapter 2, and we see there's this language of judgment, which is very interesting. And so what is Peter doing here as he quotes from Joel? Uh, we see this in verses 19 and 21. And I shall show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, there, there's a lot we can kind of unpack in this, but I, I think what Peter's saying here is essentially, look, there, there is a message of judgment, that, that God is going to bring judgment upon the world because of our failure and refusal to live for God above all things. Judgment is coming on those who have chosen to live for themselves or for anything other than God himself. This judgment is coming. And so what Peter's doing, he actually, that's not news to the people of Israel. But what Peter does is he actually widens the scope of God's judgment. And what he's saying is that, look, look, this, this judgment is coming, and it's not just for those who are outside of the nation of Israel. Judgment is coming for all people, regardless of who your mommy or your daddy are. Judgment is coming, and it's coming on those who have failed to live in accordance with God's design and consistent with his promises. So the, the scope of judgment is wider, but simultaneously, Peter is saying that the scope of hope is wider. And, and, and what, what this means is that, that Peter is saying, look, judgment is coming, and it won't be enough for you to simply say, I'm an Israelite, so I'm good to go, I'm in the clear. He's saying, no, 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 it does not matter your lineage, your family, who you're related to. The only way that you can be escaped from this judgment that God is bringing upon the world is if you call upon the name of the Lord. And Peter, as he continues his sermon, begins to widen the scope of who the Lord is. And we see that as it continues on in verses 22 through 24. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So, so Peter's saying like, look, you, you bore witness to him. You saw this guy. It's not like I'm, I'm telling you about this isolated religious event that no one else understood. He says, he performed these wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter, he, he cuts to the chase here. He's not mincing words. He is very bold in declaring, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, and you killed him. 
He's the hero of the story, and you put him to death. You, you, you killed Harry Potter. You, you killed Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker. You've put the hero of the story to death. And, and this is probably, I mean, you've got to think, like the people who are listening to this, I mean, what is their response? What is their reaction? Are, are, they, are they feeling like, you know, yeah, Peter, that's a good point. Like he's, he's trying to make them understand, <clears throat> excuse me, he's trying to make them understand that their evil intentions in putting Jesus to death, while, while their intentions were only evil, it still didn't thwart the fact that God was at work even through their evil intentions. And so, I mean, Peter's not saying, okay, you, you put Jesus to death and that kind of angered God and so he had to try to figure out plan B. He's like, no, no, no. God in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite power and infinite love, was able to accomplish his beautiful plan of redemption even through your evil intentions. Now, Peter doesn't let them off the hook. If you notice, I mean, like, he's very much saying, like, you put him to death, and yet this was still a part of God's beautiful plan, which, which is this very interesting mystery when it comes to understanding the nature and character of God. When we look at the scriptures, we see simultaneously, in many cases, side by side, the reality of God's sovereignty, that, that nothing can thwart his desire and his plans. As Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And yet we also see side by side next to it the responsibility of humanity for our actions. And this is a mystery. It is hard for us to grasp, but we see them together. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, we see these examples. In the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know, Joseph's brothers, they sold him into slavery and it led to a life of, 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 of sorrow and pr- imprisonment. But then it also led Joseph to a place of being able to save many lives as he was in leadership in Egypt. And so then later, Joseph is reconciled with his bro- or reunited rather with his brothers. And what does Joseph say to his brothers in this moment? The end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And, and we see it in the beginning book of the Bible in Genesis, we see that God is still able to accomplish his plans even through the free actions and the evil intentions of humanity. We see that as Genesis comes to a close, but we also see it here as Peter's proclaiming this powerful sermon, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man together. God will not allow the evil intentions of humanity to keep him from bringing a hope to the world. Now, when you think about the crowd and, and their attempts to try to get Jesus out of the way, because in their minds they're thinking, let's just, let's just kill this guy, end this message, so that we can kind of continue to promote uh, the, the nation of Israel. In their attempts to defeat Jesus through their greatest weapon, namely death, they found that that weapon was not sufficient. Because again, as great and as evil as their intentions were, they could not thwart the plan of God and his infinite knowledge to bring about salvation through Christ the Messiah. Death itself could not hold him. And Peter says this in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so, and so, so what Peter's doing is, he, is he's declaring this. He's like, look, look, the guy you tried to kill, he's the hero of the story, he's the Messiah. And in your attempts to eradicate him from this world, you actually were a part of God's work in bringing redemption. And so Peter then, he continues to kind of twist the knife a little bit more in the side of his listeners by essentially saying, look, look, this guy you crucified, not only is he the Messiah, he's greater than King David. 
King, I mean, I mean da- David is the hero of the people of Israel. And Peter says to them, you know how great King David is? Jesus of Nazareth, the one you put to death, is greater than him. And I mean, this has got to like boil their blood. I mean, you've got to think that they're furious at this point, thinking that Peter is like bashing. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like blasphemy or sacrilege for, to, for him to declare that Jesus is better than King David. Let, let me illustrate this. Like when I was, uh, when I was a kid, my favorite superhero was Batman. And I was just convinced, like scientifically, that, that like, there's no other greater superhero than Batman. Like you can't, you, I didn't have a category for entertaining the idea that like Spider-Man, for example, could be better than Batman. Spider-Man, really? I mean, he's, he's just a nerdy gymnast who shoots silly string out of his wrist. Like what does he do? Like he's not really that impressive. Like Batman was the greatest superhero. And so to hear anything other was just like, it was like offensive to me as a child. Uh, and, and really what, what Peter is saying is in this moment, like, yeah, you think that David is the hero, but there's a far greater hero, and you put him to death. And Peter makes this even clearer as he quotes, even from David's own words from Psalm 16, in saying that David himself was actually bearing witness to, preparing for, prophesying about the one who would come would be, who would be greater than him. Essentially, what, what, what David is saying, or what Peter is saying as he's interpreting David's words, is that Batman is saying that Spider-Man is better. Batman is declaring that Spider-Man is the greatest hero. David himself, the hero of the Jews, knew that the Messiah would be far greater than him. And, and, and Peter makes this clear in verse 29 through 31. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's like, you can go see his tomb. He's still in the ground. Being therefore a prophet, referring to David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter's saying that David, yes, is great. He's not trying to diminish or make uh, David insignificant, but what he is saying is that David was a mere stepping stone. David was previewing, foreshadowing, preparing the way for the one who would come to bring salvation to the world. And Peter says, and you put that one to death. Now, Peter concludes his sermon, but, but, but notice he doesn't, he doesn't end his sermon by saying, so what do you guys think? Any thoughts, questions, comments? If you have any feedback, I'd appreciate that. Like he, he doubles down in the message he's been declaring by saying that Jesus is the Messiah and you put him to death. So like you think, like, may, I mean, maybe like they didn't hear that first part, but Peter's like, in case you didn't hear it, like he, he doubles down and hammers into their hearts the reality that Jesus is the Christ. And so in verse 36, what does Peter say? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter wants the crowd to feel the sting of irony in in their actions. He wants them to recognize you killed the giver of life. You you rejected the, the Messiah, the very one you've been waiting for this whole time. You have mocked the one who is your true king. Peter wants them to understand that they are involved in what happened to Jesus. Peter's sermon, yes, is is, part of it is, is Peter saying, look what you did to Jesus. Do you understand that you put the Messiah to death, the giver of life, you put him to death? But Peter also lovingly wants his crowd and his listeners to also hear that yes, you did this to Jesus, 
But also, as you look at the cross, hear this. This is what Jesus has done for you. He's not just trying to make them feel guilty. It's not just a message of, look what you did to Jesus, but Peter's wanting them to hear, look what Jesus has done for you. But before they can get that, before they can understand that and connect the dots of this, of this, of this story and this message, they must see that they are complicit in why Jesus went to the cross. Yes, Peter's message is, is a message of judgment, but it is simultaneously a message of hope for all people, for everyone and anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, for they will be saved. So what happens next? Okay, so, so Peter's d- just dropped this like theological bomb on this crowd that is not really primed to hear this kind of message. And so what happens? We see in verse 41 that about 3,000 people respond to Peter's sermon. And they repent, and they believe, and they are saved. They heard the message, and, and they got it. And, and things changed in their life. And the reason why is because, as we've said, and I think the point of Peter's sermon is that, that nothing, nothing changes our life more than getting this message. Their lives were changed. They heard the message. They received it, and it did something to them. They saw the cross of Christ not just as something that they did to Jesus, but as something that Jesus did for them. But how, how do we know they got it? And, and, and maybe for us, how do we know that we have, have kind of gotten this message? How do we know that it has hit us afresh and in, in true and powerful ways? And I think Luke shows us two things in trying to figure out how do we know that we have come to get this message. The first thing is that we have to see that this message cuts to the heart. This message cuts to the heart. And we, and we see that in verse 37. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this, this phrase, uh, to be, to be uh, cut to the heart, it's the only time in the New Testament where this phrase shows up. And it, it, it literally means, it should uh, be translated as, to be stabbed in the heart. You know, which is like, not, I mean, that, that's a very strong, kind of violent image uh, one of the other places it's seen in kind of ancient Greek is actually in Homer's Iliad, where, th- where there's this description of, of this, this collection of horses that are stampeding the ground. They're, they're stabbing the heart of the ground, leaving an imprint. The ground has been changed forever because of the hooves of these horses. Similarly, the message of Jesus, it stabs us to the heart. You see, the, the crowd, they were not simply intellectually convinced of the veracity, the truthfulness of Peter's message. They were personally convicted by its power in what it was declaring about who they are, about who Jesus is, and what he is accomplishing in his life, death, and resurrection. And we see that they've been cut to the heart in their response that they ask, what must we do? How must our lives be changed because of the power of this message? And Peter says, repent. And repent, I mean, repentance is kind of this churchy word. Uh, but, but really, at the heart of it, it, it means to, to change your mind, to change your direction, to, to alter your course so that you no longer continue on the path that you are on. And so the, this crowd, as they hear this message, they're cut to the heart, and they recognize we can't be the same. Things must change in our life. What must we do? And so to hear the message of Jesus and to be cut to the heart means that you believe the truth of the message in such a way that you recognize I, I can't, I can't move forward unfazed. 
I'm no longer the same person. This message has, has changed me. It has impacted the way I think about myself, about, about my world, the way I think about my, my career and my family and relationships. Everything has changed because of this message. You can't imagine moving forward unfazed when this message has cut you to the heart. And I'll share, when, when, I, was, um, when I was in high school, I went through a pretty rebellious phase in middle school and high school. And um, uh, one night I, was, I snuck out of my house and uh, went uh, drinking with some of my friends. And we were, um, got pretty intoxicated. And all my friends who had cars left. And I was stuck. And I, had no, I didn't have a car. And I was stuck. And I didn't know what to do. And I asked my friend if he could like wake his mom up and give me a ride. And he was like, uh, no. And so we're not friends anymore to this day. But um, uh, I, I, had, I had to call my sister. My sister was eight years older than me. I uh, asked her if she could come pick me up. And, I, and so she came and picked me up. And I tried with all of my effort to have like an intelligent conversation as a 16-year-old intoxicated. It did not go very well. Um, she, she took me home. She didn't say anything. But then she woke me up at 7 a.m. and took me out to breakfast. And that was very difficult to wake up at 7 a.m. for a number of reasons. And my sister sat across from me, and she just said, I, I, know, I know what you did last night. I know, I know what you were doing, and I want you to stop. And, and, and she went on and sharing some of her story, and she, she was just helping me understand. It wasn't a message, message of judgment, but she's saying, I know the path you're on. I know where it's going to take you, and I want you to stop because it's going to destroy you. And, and, and what I heard was not just, not just words of advice, but I saw my sister whose heart was breaking at the decisions I was making in my life and where it was going to take me. And, and in that moment, I, I was cut to the heart with my sister's words. Now, I was, I was still pretty rebellious, not really interested in the things of Jesus at that time. And so I wouldn't say that I was cut to the heart in the sense of, man, I need to follow Jesus. But in this moment, hearing my sister's words I changed my behavior. I, I, I gave up kind of the party scene with friends. I, I kind of started going to church and trying to figure out what, what new life looked like. But in that moment, my sister's words cut me to the heart to the point that I knew I couldn't be the same person. I had to change my behavior. And, and I, I share that as a way to help us understand when we hear this message, when we hear the message of Jesus, it is not enough for us to simply say, it, it really intrigues me. I, I, love, I love the story of Scripture and how it gives me a framework for making sense of reality and morals and ethics, and that's good and true, but has this message cut you to the heart? Has it hit you? Has it been like stampeding horse hooves into your heart that you can't be, you can't be different? You can't move forward unfazed. You see, the Christian life, the Christian life is marked by constantly being cut to the heart by this message. It is a life that is marked by constant repentance, a constant turning back towards Jesus. Why? Because we constantly find ourselves living for things lesser than him. The life of the Christian is one that is marked by ongoing repentance. If you think about the Christian life like a road trip, you know, if you're using a GPS device, you know, when you're driving and you get off the highway to get gas, it will keep telling you, like recalculating, you need to make a U-turn, get back onto the highway, and it's kind of annoying, you know, because like, I know, I'm just, I'm just getting some, you know, some Oreos, just give me a break. But, but that's the life of the Christian. The life of the Christian is, is one of constant recalculating. It is one of constant recalibration, redirecting our focus, our attentions, our affections to Christ, because we are so prone, as we sung this morning, to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Repentance is not the act of starting the ignition on your road trip. It is, it is the ongoing adjustment to make sure that we stay on course in following Jesus. 
Which is why the great reformer Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the the castle doors uh, in Germany, the first thesis that he wanted to defend was that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So here's the question for all of us. Have we been cut to the heart by this message? Do we see that it is our sin that has put Christ on the cross? Do we see in the faces of those that that nailed Jesus to the cross, do we see our own eyes in their face? Do we hear our voice in the cries of those who yelled out, crucify, crucify? You see, it's not enough for us just to hear this message and, and believe that it's the Son of God who died on the cross. We must also see that it is our sin that put him there which is what the late theologian John Stott says so well. He says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Or as the hymn writer puts it, in how deep the Father's love for us, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you see your sin that put Jesus on the cross? But do you also see that the sin that is nailed to the cross with Jesus has been nailed to the cross so that you don't have to bear it anymore? When we look at the cross of Jesus, it is not just he is there because of my sin, but it is also my sin is there so that it can be put to death with him so that it no longer touches me, that I'm no longer condemned, that I'm declared completely, freely forgiven through what Christ has done for me. Yes, the message that Peter's proclaiming is a message that says, look what you did to Jesus, but it is simultaneously a message that says, look at what Jesus has done for you. Do we see that as we see our Messiah hanging on the cross? And does it lead us to a point of being cut to the heart where we can't imagine moving forward unchanged? Nothing changes your life more than getting this message. And the the first thing we see is that it, it cuts us to the heart But the second thing that I think Luke shows us in Peter's sermon and how this message connects to us, how we get it, is that we see that this message spreads to others. Luke ends his account of Peter's sermons with with, with these words, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And then with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This message, when it cut to their hearts, it spread like wildfire, which is why we gather in this place because of this message, because of a hostile Jewish crowd that heard this message, that got it, that cut to their heart, and it spread. And notice what Peter says. He says, this message is not just for those who are in earshot. It's, It's for your children, for those who are far off. What this means, to to kind of put it in modern day terms, is that that this message, that this message of salvation, of hope, and redemption through Christ Jesus, it's a message for churched people and unchurched people. It's it's a message that we continue to need even after we come to repentance and faith in Christ. It is a message that continues to cut us to the heart and reorient our heart towards Jesus. But it is also a message that when it cuts to the heart, it naturally spreads. Why? Because we naturally share the things that impact us. You know, I mean, like, like, do you know what this is? There's, uh, I don't know if you've seen this image before. What is that? It's a share button, right? 
It's on every website, it's on every video, every GIF, every picture online. Why? Because we tend to share the things that we enjoy. We, we like sharing things that have an impact on us. And so as we ask ourselves the question, has this message come to cut to my heart? We should ask ourselves, is it spreading? Is it spreading to my family members, to my classmates, to my coworkers, and my community? Is it a message that I believe in, in su- to such a degree that I want it to spread? And so, so as, we, as we think about that, I, I, I want us just to think about a few things, because it doesn't have to be weird. You know, sometimes we think of, of sharing our faith, that it, it's like a deep dive into the pool. You have to talk about everything about Jesus, at the, like all the time, in every single setting. But rather than thinking of, it, thinking of it like a dive, think of it more like a zero-entry pool. You know, how, how can you begin? You don't have to just jump in and try to unpack the whole story of Scripture. How can we see this as initial steps? And let me just offer four things to consider. The first is we need to pray. And, and I don't say that flippantly, but we need to pray for the people in our lives, specifically and consistently. Pray for them by name. Pray that they would come to know the Lord. Pray that they would, the Lord would open up opportunities for the gospel to be heard, to be responded to. We need to pray by name. Secondly, we need to listen. And this is so important. Just like Peter, remember, Peter didn't begin by saying, repent and believe in Jesus. He listened. He observed the crowd and what they were experiencing. Then he spoke to their experiences. In the same way, before we can come to someone assuming how they need to hear Jesus, know their story, know their pains, know their struggles, know their joys, and, and, and know what their objections are to the Christian faith because you might find the things that they object to about Christianity are the same things that you object to because they're not true. So listen, take the time to understand someone's story so that you might be able to connect the story of the gospel to their story. We need to be willing to listen. Thirdly, we do need to share. We do need to share. And, and, and maybe for you, that first step of sharing is not so much unpacking a theological concept, but sharing how has Jesus changed your life? How has Jesus cut you to the heart? How has he impacted your life? And share your experience of who Jesus is. And then fourthly, we should invite. And, and that, that doesn't mean come to church, like get someone here. Like, there was an interesting study that, that showed that the average non-Christian, before they step foot into a worship service, they attend at least three church-related events outside the walls of the church before they come here, which means maybe coming to someone's home or coming to like an outreach event or something like that before they come here. What are the ways we can begin inviting people into our homes, into our communities? Maybe it's just grabbing coffee with them, inviting them to a community group or inviting them to church but what are those steps we can take? These aren't silver bullets, but hopefully they're ways of thinking that sharing this story, sharing this message is not a deep dive, but it can be a zero-entry pool. So again, I think what Peter's trying to show us in the sermon is that nothing changes your life more than getting this message. And we see that in the way it cuts to the heart and the way in which it spreads. But the beautiful thing about all of us in this room, regardless of where we are, kind of in our faith journey or spectrum, is that we all, we all need to be cut to the heart. We all need to understand that, that this message that Christ has offered his life for us is a message that not only cuts our heart initially, but continues to do so. And so what I'd love to do as we, as we close our time is I would just love to give us a time and a moment just to pray, to be honest before the Lord, just in honest reflection, in silence, as we think about, has this message cut to, the, to my heart? Have I come to see the truth of what Christ has accomplished for me? And so I'd just love for us to pray, and I will close us with a prayer of confession of the church here in a minute. But let us take a moment to be silent before the Lord as we pray to him. Let's, let's pray.
hear this prayer of confession of the church. Father in heaven, lead us to repentance and save us from despair. Let us come to you renouncing, condemning, and loathing our sin, yet hoping in the grace that flows even to the chief of sinners. At the cross, may we contemplate the evil of sin and abhor it. May we look on him whom we pierced as one slain for us and by us. May we never despise his death by fearing its efficacy for our salvation. And whatever cross we are required to bear, let us see him carrying a heavier one. Go forth, therefore, O conquering God, and show us the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. We pray this in Christ's name for his glory. What good news it is that this message that the gospel brings us is that despite our incredible ability to destroy ourselves, our lives, and each other, God's ability to restore our brokenness is far greater. And so that is the hope of this message. Um, Okay, Um, you can stay. Let's stand for the benediction as we head out of this place. Uh, To be the church God has called us to be, scattered into the places of our influence and community. So hear these words that Jesus said to his disciples as he sent them forward on the mission that we continue to take forward. Brothers and sisters, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May that be true in our hearts. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.